What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez-Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. And I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special conference edition of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the Interdisciplinary Association for Population Health Sciences' new podcast series. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Esposito, from the Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan, and today I'm joined by panelists from the IAPHS 2020 conference session, Reducing Populations, History and Public Health in the Latinx Community. Uh, welcome in again, folks, and um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, so let's go ahead and turn things right over to the session chair, Dr. Murillo. Could you introduce yourself, the other scholars that we'll be chatting with, and jump right into our discussion? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, well, first, I'd like to welcome the IAPHS audience to this podcast roundtable. Um, my name is Lina Maria Murillo, and I'm assistant professor in the Departments of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies and History at the University of Iowa. Um, my research focuses on the history of reproductive health and population control in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in the 20th century, and I am absolutely thrilled to be hosting our conversation today. Um, before we formally begin, I'm going to ask my colleagues on the panel to go ahead and introduce themselves also just so folks can hear their voices and they can tell you a little bit about themselves. So let's start with Professor Heather Sinclair. So I'm Heather Sinclair. I teach uh, I'm in the history department at Dixie State University. And my research focuses um, principally on both re reproduction, but also disease and race in uh, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands late 19th century and early 20th century. Thank you. Uh, John? John McKiernan-Gonzalez, could you come in? Hi, I am uh, John McKiernan-Gonzalez. To follow what Dr. Murillo said, I'm director for the Center for the City of Southwest, and I use, uh, I guess, medical documents, medical records to explore citizenship, belonging, and resistance in the United States. And right now, this talk comes out of my work looking at Latino physicians and community justice movements over the course of the 20th century. Um, I'm, so Novak. I'm an assistant research scientist at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm a social epidemiologist and a community health researcher, um, and I focus on contemporary and historical research on structural and systemic drivers of health inequities for Latinx and immigrant populations. I've learned a lot from collaborating with historians, and I'm really delighted to be part of the collaboration today. Hi, I'm Jason Daniel Yo. I'm the Uni or University of Washington at Bothell. Well, I've been there a year, so sometimes I'm still saying University of Iowa. Um, I'm a full-time lecturer, so um, my research has become more focused on student experiences, and currently I'm uh, mostly interested in how social determinants of health interact with institutional university systems to um, promote or challenge learning for diverse student bodies. Thanks, everyone. So um, let's let's jump right into the conversation. I want to kind of start where, you know, with the sort of genesis for this panel and where those conversations came from. And if I'm not mistaken, they started between Jason and myself in 2018, maybe before. I don't know, Jason, if you wouldn't mind summarizing um, kind of where your initial ideas for this panel came from. So my initial idea actually came from uh, when you came to Iowa to do uh, a job talk. You talked about uh, reproductive health and history, historically in, I believe it was El Paso. And so thinking through, I had was currently working with HPV and cervical cancer in Latino communities here or there in Iowa. And I thought like, 
this is something, you know, how these historical narratives have impacted the way that the community is viewed and how the community views itself. So from there, I've just kind of gone forward and forward. And then as social determinants of health became more of a focus of our work, thinking about history as a social determinant. And so, um, you know, public health has tended to be very multidisciplinary, at least in, in my training. And it seemed only natural that we would pull in historians that were doing public health work to think about how uh, we may impact um, current health. Does that wrap it up? Yeah, that's, that, does, that does so nicely. And so this, I mean, I think it's really exciting for all of us um, to be able to do this type of interdisciplinary work and to see how, you know, we bring the past into the present um, in more in more ways than one. And I guess for me, as I was thinking about how to help um, lead this discussion, one of the things that I wanted to start off with um, was to talk about the present. Oftentimes historians will will do that, right? We'll, we'll see uh, uh, an issue um, currently sort of in, in our in our world and we'll ask, you know, why is it that this these things are happening now? What can the past tell us? How does the past inform um, this current situation or this current issue? And so with that, I wanted to start off um, briefly to talk about um, sort of our current moment, right? The reason we're having this podcast was because initially we were supposed to be meeting physically in a space, right? We were all supposed to go to the conference, the IAPHS conference, and COVID-19 hit in um, March, right? I mean, really sort of hit, hit us in March, even though folks had been sort of watching it unfold in January and February abroad. And, um, you know, everything, our life has been upended and things have changed. And early on, um, I remember uh, sort of looking through social media and, and other um, and other forms of media to scholars asking questions about sort of um, data and how data was being collected and if race race was um, was being considered in the collection of data. And um, I re I clearly remember um, folks early on said, oh, well, you know, COVID-19 doesn't discriminate. Um, anyone can get COVID-19. Um, and in fact, I, I happened upon some awful posts from entertainers who were said, who said, you know, this is the great equalizer. Everyone can, can, will be afflicted by this. Anyone can be afflicted by this. But of course, what we've seen, um, is that that's not the case, right? Um, this, disease has um, really sort of found its home in particular within the Latinx and Black communities in the United States. Um, current CDC reports describe Hispanic or Latino people at 2.8 times more likely to test positive for the disease than their white non-Hispanic counterparts. Um, and this number in some cases is the same for um, Native American communities, uh, non-Hispanic persons while for black and non-Hispanic populations, um, it's about 2.6. Hospitalization and deaths are just as disturbing, right? Latinx people are 4.6 more like, 4.6 times more likely to be hospitalized than their white counterparts, and 1.1 times more likely to die than white people from COVID-19. And equally devastating, we were talking about this with, with Heather earlier, um, are the statistics for COVID-19 during pregnancy. Latinx women are nearly 50% more likely than their white counterparts to become infected and nearly two thirds more likely than black women. Um, and, you know, I recall politicians and some, even some health experts attempting to reframe these disparities. Um, saying COVID-19 afflicted mostly black and brown people because of pre-existing conditions, they said. Um, more blatantly racist commentary suggested people's cultural practices facilitated the transmission of the disease. Um, I can think back to uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida suggesting that the reason why more Latinx people in Florida had COVID-19 was because they lived in densely populated homes, right? And so I want to ask my historian colleagues um, to place this current moment um, and these problematic assessments of the coronavirus 
pandemic into historical context, which I think will nicely lead us into broadly speaking about the Latinx community and, and the way history determines health disparities. Um, and I, I'd like for, for my colleagues to, um, to help us sort of center structural and historical forces that have shaped the landscape of racist health outcomes for the Latinx community in the United States. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump to John McKiernan Gonzalez. And if you wouldn't mind sort of starting us off and kind of giving some, some sort of major historical landmarks from which to draw in the late 19th and early 20th century that can inform how we understand the sort of racial formation of Latinx people in the US. And then I'll ask um, Heather to expand on some of these key moments. So, so John, if you wouldn't mind taking it away from there. Um, of course, um, apologies for breaking this up. Um, the recent article by Ed Sandoval in the New York Times uh, focused on South Texas is right now one of the hotbeds of COVID-19. And he emphasized in his journey there and visiting in his family, how many people he thought were coming down with uh, COVID-19 supachangas because of the somehow incredibly close-knit family rituals that bind Texas Mexicans together in South Texas. And through the whole conversation, the whole really painful and gripping story, um, Ed Sandoval did not actually comment on the work conditions people face in the service sector in South Texas, on the fields in South Texas, in the food sectors of South Texas, and the custodian of South Texas, in the trailer parks and many of the places they featured that people are living multi-generationally within two boxes with very little sort of like ventilation that's there. But it really sort of um, almost pathologized uh, the sort of like culture that people have that they share with each other. Um, in a sense, this is family values that will kill you, not um, family values that we celebrate in this country. But that sense of trying to figure out what was unique about South Texas is actually not new. It's very much part of the way that a lot of public health institutions look at Latinx cultures and looks at look at Mexican cultures. Um, and this actually goes all the way back to the National Board of Health and um, the first national surveys of health conditions that involve epidemics in the United States. So one of the things that people forget when they think about public health in this country is, of course, people have been dying and getting sick forever throughout history, but um, in the, at the end of Reconstruction, there was an epidemic, uh, the Yellow Fever epidemic of 1877, which then closed off all transportation across the Mississippi River, froze the um, economy, and had sort of like the largest death rate and casualty rates of um, the country up to that point, not counting the Civil War. So both Republicans and Democrats, uh, business people and liberals, wanted to create a national uh, board that would determine when epidemics and quarantines would happen and when it didn't and survey conditions. So what I want to do is run us through a couple landmark dates that mark the relationship of Latino communities, Texas, Mexican, Mexican and Puerto Rican communities and the relationship to the history of public health in this country. So 1882 is key to think about this because after the National Board of Health uh, lost their authority over the epidemic fund, the US Public Health Service gained authority over it and had to sort of like implement the quarantine or something to be able to prove themselves. First yellow fever quarantine they put in was in um, South Texas. They marked off a line between Corpus Christi and Laredo which doesn't sound like that much, uh, unless you think it's the same distance between Washington, D.C. and um, and New York City. A public health service um, implemented its first quarantine, which went against the general disease theory of how epidemics are transmitted um, and focused on a particular unholy people instead of making sure places were healthy enough to live and drew this massive quarantine um, uh, with the 400-mile uh, line between Corpus Christi and San Diego, keeping the rest of Texas away from going in there and vice versa, South Texas and Mexicans from making their way into the United States. Fortunately, the uh, yellow fever epidemic, yellow fever did not, or mosquitoes didn't make their way past that line and held it right there, giving the U.S. Public Health Service a way to um, 
a way to demonstrate their political authority and their ability to interact with situations. So thinking about 1882 highlighted both the end of Reconstruction and the end of kind of like interracial republicanism, having authority, as well as creating a line, an informal temporary line that kept Mexicans from crossing freely into Texas and the rest of the United States. And thinking about um, Mexican-American, oh, Latinx is thinking about these populations that are not uh, treated as part of the United States, but are treated as potentially permanent threats to the United States. The other three dates I'd like to discuss um, are 1903, and in particular, the Isabel Gonzalez versus the Immigration Service case, where Isabel Gonzalez, a Puerto Rican woman who was moving to New York to meet her future husband, was held up um, under the 1895 Immigration Act for being likely to become a public charge. As we know now, um, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Um, back then, that wasn't very clear. Um, and the court case that Isabel Gonzalez mounted against the Immigration Service helped determine that um, people can travel freely between the United States and Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico is part of the United States, very much like a treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo updated for the United States. But here it's sort of like that a medical disability question that uh, likely became a public charge helped monitor and um, oversee and surveil the movement of people between metropolises like Los Angeles, El Paso, and Chihuahua, between New York, San Juan, and Cuba, between New Orleans and Havana. And these places, this medical surveillance helped then establish a kind of relationship that um, communities coming, going back and forth for work uh, were subject to on a temporary and permanent basis. The next state I'd like to think about is the emergence of uh, what we broadly call the medical infrastructure of the country. And, um, and then, of course, the ongoing surveillance of people in these things. And that's 1948. 1948 um, is after World War II. Um, it's the beginning of the Chinese Revolution when sort of like the Red Scare kicks off. And you'd think that Mexicans would be immune from this sort of like crisis, immune in quotation marks. What you have in 48 is still a continuation of the labor draft between Northern Mexico and the United States, who has set a program, the kinds of incorporation and surveillance that happened with that. Um, you have as well the movement to turn Puerto Rico to a commonwealth and pass off the responsibilities of creating medical infrastructure onto Puerto Ricans themselves and not sort of like being run through the executive branches up there. And that allows Puerto Ricans to create their own medical schools um, that are meant to like address Puerto Rican conditions in Puerto Rico. Um, <laughs> and what I'd like to do with 48, it's also the first time uh, national health insurance goes on the ballot box, trying to sort of like include everybody in the process. National health insurance uh, goes down in flames. Um, but that discussion about that sort of like national responsibility for people, like the military had done for its soldiers and its veterans, um, being extended does not disappear. So we have a situation where people are being integrated because of military situations through the Reseto program or through the draft, and then being expelled through sort of like anti-communism, and then expanded sort of like a border patrol surveillance of communities that have been invited to come to the United States. And of course, um, there is no quota against people moving across borders in the Americas until 1965. In 1965, before I can go on, I'm starting to uh, do dates um, like people can do baseball cards. 1965 establishes the um, the quota system for the Americas, and that leaves the close to half a million Mexicans who come to the United States to work freely, being under invitation, turned into somehow an illegal population, an unauthorized population. At the same time, you have that, you have the Great Society programs, the Civil Rights Act that is meant to like provide due process. At the same time, you have the creation of an unauthorized working population in the United States. It doesn't go away. <coughs> um, with, of course, the Social Security Act forcing every medical institution to desegregate and provide equal medical service to everybody. So this, I think, the 1965 sets the table that we all live on right now with unauthorized populations, broad inclusion, um, and uh, 
military enterprises abroad. I'm going to leave it at that because I could go on. Thanks, John. Heather, do you mind kind of expanding a little bit um, on on some of the dates that 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 John sort of gave us now? And then also, can you jump into discussions about why history pushes us or how history pushes us rather to address um, sort of the structural and systemic issues um, and sort of think about them um, outside of the bounds of, of these cultural narratives that um, people like to, to use currently? Okay, well, uh, just building on some of the dates that John has talked about, uh, I'll focus more on tuberculosis and reproduction, which are my areas. Uh, 1920s is a very critical moment. We have That's when we have the emergence of border patrol on the U.S.-Mexico border, the hardening of the border, um, growing nativism, targeting ethnic Mexicans in the U.S. And this continued perception that John's already spoken about of Mexicans as diseased and as a threat to the white American population. Uh, in, in this period, in, in the Southwest specifically, Mexicans become racialized as carriers of tuberculosis. Um, and this is going to be a perception that will be very powerful in the forced and coerced deportations of hundreds of thousands of ethnic Mexicans, many of them U.S. citizens in the late 1920s and during the 1930s during the Great Depression. Um, and this stands out uh, particularly because the Southwest had earlier been a place that people with tuberculosis from eastern parts of the United States moved to um, in order to cure themselves of tuberculosis at a time when there was no uh, treatment, medical treatment, no, no antibiotics yet. And so dry, sunny, warm climates were seen as a possible a place where they, people, if they weren't too advanced, could recover. And many people, you know, thousands of mostly white Americans, not exclusively, but predominantly, moved to El Paso, brought, they came with active cases of tuberculosis. It was about 50% of all white households around 1900 um, were there because someone in the household had tuberculosis. And then when they, we begin, or the, we get, begin to see reports of the disease spreading to the local Mexican population. And tuberculosis before this moment had not been present in any real degree in in this region. And so, um, and it's in, during that period that we begin to see uh, Mexicans become, you know, this major contradiction, but Mexicans will eventually by the 19, late 1920s and 30s will become racialized as tuberculosis carriers. Um, and it's gonna be, it's, so it's gonna go from white essentially to Mexican, from white to a Mexican disease. And they're going to point to the, so-called Indian blood of Mexicans, um, the cultural practices of Mexicans as being the reason why this disease is now predominant in that population as opposed to the white population. Um, so many of the, those same things that we hear about are, are being used today talking about COVID rates and why they're prevalent as Lena talked about within certain populations, blaming culture and oftentimes blaming biology as well still today, um, notions of biology. Um, and another date, important date or moment in history I would point to is, an, again, the 1930s, 1920s and 30s. And in terms of reproduction, this is a moment when me Mexican, ethnic Mexican infant mortality rates in the United States are as high or they rival and even sometimes surpass that of Black infants. Um, and it also marks a time when ethnic Mexican women are being denied, they're being excluded from hospitals, um, hospital-based maternity care in a number of different ways through deportation or by, uh, by closing hospitals that serve ethnic Mexican women and so forth. So this becomes a key moment in, in terms of the history of reproduction, very high infant mortality rates, which will then be interesting to think about when um, Nicole here talk, Nicole talks about the Hispanic paradox, right? Because the Hispanic paradox, um, Michelle will relate to that later, but we, then we see a shift, right, in terms of infant mortality and the ethnic Mexican community. And I think that's a question that we still need to wrestle with as 
why that shift and to what degree is that shift real? Um, and in terms of thinking how history can help us think about these questions of race and health disparities, I think it can help us see more clearly how these how structural racial inequalities develop and change over time or how they persist um, and how ideologies of racial difference are either being crafted at this, uh, to explain inequalities and in health outcomes or to, or recycling ones that were used for other groups. For example, looking at the Latinx community, we can see explanations that were being used to explain high mortality rates within Native American communities, within Black communities are going to be recycled to also be used to explain away Latinx racial health disparities. Um, and it also, I think, speaking to the moment when we see this question of data and efforts to sometimes either hide data, particularly concerning race, or data altogether, right? Like where I live in Utah, there's a strong movement to do not test, right? Telling people do not test for COVID. And, um, and then, of course, Trump, who wanted, did not want to let people infected with COVID on ships um, come, you know, come aground at ports because he didn't want those numbers, right? They're, quote, bad numbers. So we see that often in history, too. Efforts, for example, in El Paso in 1936, with its very high infant mortality rate, there's an effort to um, take ethnic Mexican babies' deaths and convert them, basically register them as Black Negro deaths, they call them the Black deaths, and um, so to reclassify them. And in that, that way, it was essentially an attempt to hide the deaths of ethnic Mexican babies who were being classified as white, right? Because that resulted in a very high white infant mortality rate. So let's take out these numbers and um, reclassify them as a way to hide them. Um, and, and it was it was the Mexican community that stood up and, and said, no, we're not going to let that happen. So those are just some ideas. Thank you, Heather. Um, and so, Nicole, since Heather mentioned you um, in, the Hispanic, in the Hispanic paradox, if you wouldn't mind um, talking about how this history has informed, right, the, the, the Hispanic paradox, which seems to be um, something that is continues to be used in public health, um, and how the paradox is sort of taught to students, um, and why you think that perhaps a more complex understanding of history, um, right, can change the way that public health scholars today study the Latinx community. I think this is something that really emerged from um, conversations with you and Jason, as well as other colleagues thinking about um, the, the relationship between history and public health, because the Hispanic paradox is an idea that I'll define shortly, it's increasingly contested, um, but then, you know, what frameworks we use instead of it in public health. Um, I think we're still figuring out, there's great work from many folks in IAPHS and, and elsewhere um, that are starting to think more systemically, more structurally about Latinx health and its drivers. Um, and I think a deeper understanding of history would really, really bolster that. So just for listeners who aren't familiar, um, the Hispanic paradox is kind of, if you're going to learn one thing about Latinx health and in public health training, it's going to be this idea of the Hispanic paradox, often taught in introductory level public health courses. Um, and it uh, describes a cluster of findings related to the good health of Latinx or Hispanic, so-called Hispanic populations in the U.S. when compared to non-Hispanic whites. Um, and it's been observed across a number of health outcomes that are considered markers of overall population health, such as all-cause mortality, infant mortality, which Heather mentioned, and birth outcomes. So um, beginning around in the 80s, people started to document uh, better outcomes for Mexican origin, especially populations in the U.S., um, relative to white populations. And they termed this paradoxical um, because it developed despite Latinx populations in that same time period having lower average incomes and education levels than non-Hispanic whites. So our, our truism in population health is that low income and low education lead to poor health. And, and this was challenged by this finding that this population that 
on average was poorer and had lower educational attainment was having better health outcomes in that time. Um, over time, researchers have added a few more nuances to this pattern, to this paradox. So they've noted that the mortality advantage of Hispanic Latinx populations is greatest among folks of Mexican origin, as opposed to Puerto Rican, Cuban, or other origins. They've also noticed that the mortality advantage or the health advantage is greatest among folks who are foreign born, so born in another country and migrate to the US, or in the case of Puerto Ricans who are citizens from the beginning, island born and then migrate to the US. Um, and then the, the final kind of nuance that folks have added is that even among folks who are immigrants and have that greatest mortality advantage relative to non-Hispanic whites, the mortality advantage deteriorates with time in the US. Um, and so this again is just something that you get taught in often like intro-level public health courses. And when students learn about it in school, they usually learn a few kind of classic explanations for why this happens. I still remember when I was an undergraduate in a stats class and the professor found out I was interested in public health and was working at these clinics with migrant workers in my home state of Iowa. She's told me about the Hispanic paradox because she thought I, I should know about it. And she told me it was because um, Latino families have really good social support and family connection. And so that's why they're healthier. And that was just sort of the answer to the problem. Um, and many students, you know, are taught other explanations, which, which are probably a part of this pattern, which are more about um, data issues or, or selection issues. So we have selection mig selective migration of healthy immigrants, which is sometimes called the healthy migrant effect. Um, and there's probably some truth to this. People who pack up and move to another country to varying degrees, depending on the push and pull factors, may be different from the folks who do not pack up and migrate, and that might explain some of these differences. Um, or there's even this idea of selective out-migration of immigrants who are sick. Um, they call that salmon bias, which is a, a literally dehumanizing term to describe part of that, that data error. And there are many other explanations that have been explored, including undercounting Latinx deaths due to misclassification on death certificates other things. Um, however, another really powerful concept that has emerged out of that cluster of findings, which, which may, or may, not, may or may not represent a real pattern, um, is the idea that this deterioration of Latino health after migration or across immigrant generations um, is due to cultural factors. And so this is the idea of acculturation or um, another related idea of negative assimilation, which is another term folks have used in the literature. And these frameworks propose that US-born Latinos um, compared to immigrant Latinos have fewer protective cultural resources such as social support or more likely to engage in deleterious health behaviors like poor diet, sedentary behavior. Um, and that that's somehow why these US-born Latinos are closer to the poor health of US born whites, or in some case actually worse health than US born whites. Um, and this has been, a the idea of acculturation has been very powerful in the public health literature, um, but it's also become a very clouded field of findings. There are a lot of mixed findings. There's a lot of debate about how you measure acculturation, how you measure culture. Um, and I think, it's fair to say that there's, there's no conclusion that there is this real linear process of negative assimilation, of, of losing all these protective health factors that explains this pattern that, that people have seen over and over in, in public health data since the 80s. So that leaves us kind of uh, in, a, in a tricky point. Um, and I think there's been really, really great research that's emerged in population health that started to say, you know, maybe acculturation, we just need to let that idea to the side and think about other things that might be going on. And actually, Jason and I were speaking, and it, along with Lena, um, in preparation for this, we wanted to acknowledge one scholar who's been really, really fundamental in that in that pivot, and that's Edna Viruel Fuentes, who... Um, was a professor of Chicano and Latino studies at the University of Illinois 
Urbana-Champaign and had a doctorate in public health. Um, we're really sad to, um, that she had passed away just a few weeks ago. She was really, really one of the great minds in this area of public health. And I know she inspired me and a lot of my peers and, and many, many other scholars to think beyond acculturation was literally the title of one of her, one of her landmark articles. Um, and you know, Edna and other scholars pointed a lot of ways that this um, culture-centered account of the public of the Hispanic paradox had a lot of weaknesses. Um, I think one of the most important ones is that it was not universal across all Hispanic groups or across time. So as Heather mentioned, this isn't just a, a naturally occurring thing that Hispanics are naturally healthy. Um, although there is research in the more of the biosciences lately that will try to claim kind of genetic advantages of Hispanic populations with their biological clock. We can do a whole other podcast on that. Um, but um, as Heather mentioned, you know, there was a time not long ago in the U.S. where Mexican origin infants had higher infant mortality than U.S. born whites. So this isn't just a naturally occurring thing. It's something that's contingent on people's circumstances, um, on their structural conditions, um, and probably requires a lot more of a multi-level approach to understand what's driving it. Um, so there's an emerging literature, including work by many members of IPHS, that directly engages these kind of structural conditions that we increasingly realize we probably need to think about to understand why there's this decline in Latino health over generations and over time in the U.S. This includes research on residential segregation, exposure to um, exposure to immigration enforcement and other exclusive racializing and racist immigration policies, as well as exposure to interpersonal racism, cultural racism, and other manifestations of systemic racism. Um, and I think what I really hope that we can keep digging into today is the ways that uh, if public health scholars have a better understanding of history, that's going to help us think about how all this systemic inequity that we see cross-sectionally in the current moment was constructed and produced over time. So Latinx Americans are not naturally lower income or have lower educational attainment than non-Hispanic white Americans. That's a condition that was produced by colonialism, by segregation, by exclusionary and racist immigration, education, employment, housing, health policies. These are all modifiable conditions. So if we can understand the historical trajectory by which these conditions were produced, we can actually start, you know, because we're an applied field in public health, we intervene. We can think about how would we start to dismantle some of these uh, enduring inequities. Thank you, Nicole. That was that was awesome. I'm, and I'm taking notes too, as as people are talking from my own my own research. Um, and this is why I think these kinds of conversations are so. Um, can be so fruitful um, because we sometimes get siloed in our in our fields and even the language right that um, other disciplines use is so helpful. Um, so I you know I want to jump to Jason and I you know Jason we've talked about this so much and you have really um, in some ways made me think about history as vital to the sort of applied approach um, that Nicole just mentioned. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us about sort of in your own work, how you see the Hispanic paradox obscuring health issues in the Latinx community um, and why you think sort of history, you know, what what can you tell us about your um, th this initial concern, right, that you had that history is, um, per, you know, history is a space for us to think about health disparities. So thinking about uh, just sort of going back to what um, Nicole's talking about, the and we we're we're guilty both broadly and academically of diving very shallow into issues that are not our own, and so the Hispanic paradox, which is this ultimately very 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 complex and and at times probably misleading um, sort of data driven concept. It obscures the processes that undermine community and individual health in and across Latinx communities and peoples. Further, it reinforces the narrative of Latinx as a homogenous group with similar backgrounds, immigration patterns, generational health patterns, or health entitlements and privileges. 
Finally, most of all, research in and around the Hispanic paradox takes a single point of time perspective. In other words, it ignores the history of Latinx in the United States. So, um, you know, the, these are the things that sort of fall into our field-specific ways of looking at things. And public health, even with a huge history of events and interventions and clearly its own brand of racism, um, the Hispanic paradox sits squarely on top of a single point in time and tries to explain all of these variables as if yesterday never happened. So I think that's kind of where I was going with that. And then, you know, thinking through, so how, how, how can history help us to understand the health concerns that we're dealing with today? And we have to understand history describes the process of marginalization, marginalization for um, communities of color. Decisions, policies, and narratives are all cumulative. So the decisions that, that were made 40, 50, 60 years ago in 1900 in, in all the dates that, that um, Heather and John talked about, they set precedent and they're built on for today. In a way, we can think about the decisions that we made today are bound by the decisions that were made yesterday. And so that keeps us from thinking outside of the box or from doing things that would actually address the social up upstream issues of health. The idea that Latinx are violent or dirty did not just become a narrative in the last couple of years. It is a trope that has been used over and over and over again. Immigration patterns are driven by centuries of immigration and foreign policy, which also drive the narratives or stories that are told about various groups of people. Ultimately, the basis and foundation of the, for the plethora of implicit biases and stereotypes of a people are born in the distant past. Each decision and reaction is an incremental change that over time drives deep into our collective consciousness, making these biases and stereotypes seem natural and rational. When we talk about these, about racism, and, and you know, I think, and I think there are other scholars that really think about the, the, the reverse of the Hispanic paradox is about exposure to racism. Well, racism is eminently dependent on these narratives about people in the past. Why we can't kick the effects of slavery and we can't kick the effects of um, all the different ways that Latinos have been marginalized and Asian peoples and uh, Native Americans. So I think that's kind of where, where I wanted to stop prophetizing. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'm curious, and uh, I might be just moving a little bit outside the script here, but I'm 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 fascinated um, by the sort of connection between um, Heather and John's work, who have been so critical of public health and the history of public health, right, and and citing both of them so strongly in their own work, right, that public health is a site of the racialization of Latinx people, right, and then we have. Um, Nicole and Jason, uh, two of my favorite public health people. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, what you, you know, as a group of four here, incredibly, um, you know, radical thinkers, how do we decouple this very problematic history from this particular moment now, right? Like, you know, what is it about these conversations, this conversation that we're having? that we can, um, you know, continue to do the, the sort of thoughtful epidemiological work that you two are doing. Um, and is it possible to sort of, I don't want to say sever that history because I don't, I don't think that's possible, but how do we sort of break from that racist past, right? That has produced these tropes that Jason was talking about earlier. And I'm totally moving aside from the script, but I'm very curious about this conversation. And Heather and John, feel free to jump in, sorry. I don't have the answer, but I will say this is a question a lot of people in public health are asking themselves right now, I think especially with the uprising for Black Lives that's become, reached the visibility of people in public health who might not have thought about systemic injustice as much. Um, I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, if, if we 
truly believe in promoting the health of the public, that's everyone. And if we're going to acknowledge the, the very, very strong weight of evidence that these systemic issues matter for health, um, how do we do it? I think I've learned a lot from, uh, Heather just mentioned something when we were preparing for this, um, about thinking about like medicalizing or co-opting movements for social justice, which was not something that I had necessarily mm -hmm. thought about before in public health. I think one thing we can see is that there's, I don't know always how to intervene, but there's clear policies in place that are perpetuating harm right now that, that could be rescinded. Um, some, I have studied some of the immigration enforcement policies that are causing a lot of harm to health. So I think that's one thing public health can do in the in the current moment. But I think we also probably need to listen and reflect a lot more. Absolutely. John, did you want to jump in? Um, sorry, I was like listening to uh, Nicole and I was um, then sent off on my own tangent. But I did want to say um, one of the things is as historians, we, we try to find the primary source, not necessarily the smoking gun, but the set of institutional records that mark a particular institution's relationship to the surrounding community. But as a result, we kind of fetishize finding those sources to be able to tell a narrative. And when we think of sort of like using problematic epidemiological data, problematic data to sort of like tell a story, you catch more of these stories. So um, thinking about the way that Jason was pushing to use history as a risk category, or as a suspect category to be civil rights term terminology to help explain people's movements, say from um, a segregated disinvested neighborhood into a workplace, um, the service sector, where they're then exposed to attitudes about that and going back history. Using that kind of data gives you a chance to think about movement and disparity in a way that my particular disciplinary obsession with finding that event that happened and diagnosing the event um, prevents and in fact actually disallows this broader take on the situation. Um, the other thing is, of course, it's part of the history of medicine. Um, riots accompany epidemics. Um, when we think back to, um, to sort of like yellow fever epidemics in slave regions, people assume that African Americans were immune to yellow fever, which we know may or may not be true. But as a result, when these things, people, if we flip that around, is also it gave people the opportunity to have rebellions in places that weren't as well policed. Um, so the epidemics create less surveillance, uh, less oversight, and create openings for these kinds of rebellions that then might change policy farther down the line. And I think we see that in particular places where people are mobilizing both around COVID-19 and then around Black Lives Matters or defunding the police in this context of less ability oversight and this kind of like general uh, state reproduction crisis that happens. Um, but as people who have to think about policy and think about conditions, um, my favorite thing is like the Civil Rights Act was probably the most effective um, public health intervention in the conditions facing African-Americans in the South. And the kinds of um, mortality and life outcomes that follow from that um, are impressive. And maybe it's sort of like a culture of activism, a culture of engagement, uh, more sense of beloved community. But more than that, I think is general, better access, better jobs, and um, perhaps better conditions and better ability to sort of like have the tools of resilience. And, uh, well, I would just like to say some of my best friends are in public health. <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, I mean, I, it's, I'm just thinking about, so I do have actually a friend besides the folks here, a friend who's an epidemiologist with the CDC, and she was visiting me in Utah when the pandemic really started to hit. And so we're sitting on the couch and we're watching the news, you know, in the morning and the evening. And I, she and I were just like, okay, here she is. She's an epidemiologist on the sofa watching the news, right? And just the feeling of powerlessness she felt at the time. And, um, you know, she was going back to work, you know, in a few days. But 
how she the, the position she was in was not in a good position to actually help with the pandemic, right? Because of so many different things that have helped have happened in terms of like federal funding and agencies and the disconnect between communities. And so, I mean, really, it points to me the need, and not just for public health people in public health, but also historians, all of us in academia, to really, as Nicole said, listen and um, follow community movements, right? What in terms of what we should be doing, what we need to say, what we need to um, produce or what have you. It's just right now we really need to let them lead and listen and follow as best we can. Um, yeah. And I I just quickly want to say that I, I 100% agree with what Heather just said as I working on my own project and looking at the history of reproductive health at El Paso and looking at um, the, the need for, um, for care, I'm struck by the fact that so many people in the community knew what they needed, but um, people with money, um, people who are financially stable, people in public health and, and other private organizations um, felt the need that, you know, wanted to orchestrate what that community needed rather than actually asking the community what the community needed. Um, and so, you know, we see this continually, um, you know, the repetition of this all the time. So I agree very much with what you just said, Heather. Jason, do you want to answer my my unscripted question? <laughs> I do. Um, so my primary responsibility is teaching. And, you know, when I think about um, I've always thought of schools of public health and, and health studies programs as the means with which we socialize the future public health workforce. And we do that almost ahistorically, right? So why, so history becomes important and because we can see these as you all talk, as Heather, John, and Lena, as you talk, we're seeing these circles over and over and over again. I was like, we've done this before. We've been here before. We and and until we start teaching those histories in public health, that we're going to continue to come up with the same solutions that didn't work in the past. Right. So, um, we need to think history needs to be more a part of our field, and so it needs to be part of our curriculum. And I think um, the Associated Schools of Public Health need to start thinking about objectives and goals that go into certification um, around history. And we need them. I don't know my public health history with a PhD in history. That sounds abysmal to me, right? I didn't, I didn't know history of public health until I met Lena, the historian. <laughs> and, then, and Jason was like, is this a thing in your discipline? I'm like, oh, it's such a thing. Let me introduce you to all these amazing scholars who I follow obsessively with their, their, you know, thoughtful. I mean, for me, public health and thinking about the history of public health is what, you know, moved me to, to think about racialization because it's so clear. You can see it in some ways. I, you know, it's so, you know, John was earlier talking about sort of evidence, right? I mean, one of the things about public health is that they kept records and they were, you know, this is at the, you know, they're excited about bureaucracy. And, and so we can see in some ways sort of very clearly, right, um, the documentation of the ways in which race is produced in the United States in the later half of the 19th uh, century and into the 20th century. So um, it sounds like we are at a place where we're going to, um, I want to kind of give everyone just quickly a final word. If, if there's one thing that you would like people to walk away from, um, as they sort of end this this podcast, um, what would that be? And I'm going to start, I'm facing a screen here. So I'm going to start first um, with John and then Heather and then Nicole. And then again, I'll, I'll end with Jason. So um, thinking about this has reminded me of like, what is the impact of the Young Lords takeover of Lincoln Hospital in New York City? And the immediate aftermath of that was the appointment of Helen Rodriguez Trias, a uh, Puerto Rican trained, uh, New York born uh, physician to run Lincoln Hospital. 
And within five years after that, she ran the New York City Board of Health because of her involvement with communities. And 10 years after that, um, Antonia Novello ended up being appointed Surgeon General under the Bush administration um, in terms of this process. But you can almost draw a straight line between the decision to take over Lincoln Hospital to stop people from having um, forced sterilizations, from being treated like baby vehicles, and um, from being left to buy and die in the um, in the hallways. And this is what my uh, my aunt, um, Aunt Pat McKiernan, said: like people were left to die in the hallways. And I'm so glad that they stood up and stood up for themselves and other people in that hospital. So you can actually track the impact of a riot, of rebellion, of organized resistance in policy afterwards. If you like, this is the nice thing about history and geography is you can do it by region and you can track it over time, how people and policymakers are trying to put stuff in, whether it's to co-op, whether it's to contain, but you can actually track the impact of a medical rebellion um, and of rebellion in general on policy. Uh, am I... Yes, Heather, you're next. Thank you, okay. John. I agree. I love Heather. Uh, so I, one thing I, my interest is in reproduction and population, of course. And so I think it's really important, all, thinking about all the things that are happening right now and in the past, is placing this within a context of white fear, white you know, movement around white supremacy, white nationalism, and this fear of... Uh, of, of a, a nation that was imagined to be white, which of course never really never was white, but a nation was imagined to be white under threat from other populations. And so when we think of that and we think of what we're talking about, the high mortality rates um, under COVID, you know, I, I think that's a really important way to th- a context to think about it, right? Um, the way that this feeds into white nationalist thinking and um, goals and so forth. Um, this isn't something I'd, I'd planned to say, but it, it's really just um, resonated, I think, especially when John was commenting about what history can teach us about how change happens. You know, my comments so far, I mostly focused on, you know, the, the epidemiological question of why do we see the inequities we see um, and the ways history can inform that. But I think actually we could learn a lot too from historians about how change happens, um, at least in epidemiology, our theory of change is maybe informed more by clinical epidemiology, where we have this idea that you build a body of evidence and then you just have the weight of the evidence and you inform maybe a professional society and then there's a change in practice. Um, But when it comes to health inequities, that's not how change is gonna happen. You can document it all you want and you can explain that it's because of structural racism, but it's not like you go to the board of structural racism and then they change their policy. It's gonna change because people are gonna take power and people are gonna, are going to stand up for what's right. Um, so that's another way that we can learn in public health from history is seeing how these injustices have been addressed and um, redressed and, and fought for um, by communities throughout history. Jason. I think one of the challenges of um, public health going into the future is going to be this, is this concept of U.S. exceptionalism. Because if we don't believe that we're the one, the, our poverty rates are killing people, that our lack of education and barrier to education are killing people, um, that racism is killing people, um, we can't, we can't really address these things. So a critical reflection and a critical look back at our actual history, not the whitewashed history that we got in high school, destroys or counters that, that myth of exceptionalism. Um, and we need to be able to look back at that and, and, and tackle our history before we can tackle our future. That's it. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. And I think we're like, my, my alarm just went off. I was very good. I had, I had, a, I had a little alarm on. Um, thank you, everyone. Uh, Nicole, Jason, Heather, John. Thank you so much for, for coming together and doing this panel for the IAPHS um, podcast. And we hope to continue this conversation um, in, in the future. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Lena. Absolutely.
Yeah, thank you guys so much for this conversation. I could listen to this all day, uh, but like I said, unfortunately, we do have to go and live our lives um, <laughs> at some point. Um, but thanks again, everyone, for a really, really great discussion. Um, here's, uh, if you really enjoyed what you heard today, uh, be sure to tune in for more conversations on how experts from different methodological and disciplinary traditions work with one another across boundaries to understand and improve population health in upcoming episodes of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. And also, be sure to check out the work of other amazing scholars participating in IAPHS's uh, 2020 annual meeting. Uh, you can visit our website, IAPHS.org, for more recordings from our conference. Uh, see you all next time.